Turn, if you will, to Matthew 22. Now, last week we uh, looked at the topic of true religion. Might sound strange, sort of a takeoff from James's statement of pure religion. We talked about having a good compass. I gave the illustration, what if you were just woke up one day and found yourself in the middle of the desert, it's high noon. Someone has given you a map about how to get some water. But what's your problem? Is the, is the map supposed to go this way? Is the map supposed to go this way? Is the, which, which way? I know it's on the map it's this way, but which way am I supposed to point the map? So in order to find water, to find life, not die out there in the desert, you need a compass. You remember, again, from your high school days that a map, the top of a map always points north. And you get that compass, it always points north, or close to north. And you put that compass on that map and get it oriented, and now that map will do you good. That map will bring you life. That map will lead you to the destination you're looking for. So it is with Scripture. Scripture's a big book. A lot of things in it. When you first start to read it, it's very intimidating because it's clearly out of a culture of which it's very hard to relate. Millennium have gone by since those cultures were in place and the Bible speaks in terms of those ancient cultures. And so it's really helpful when you have some very clear passages that are very easy to grasp. They summarize things for you. They clarify and simplify things for you. They capture the essence of an aspect of the Bible or in some places the Bible itself, the gospel itself. And they keep us properly oriented. They define and help us to define and stay with true religion. One of those compass passages is in the Old Testament. The Israelites were all confused. They were, uh, as we read throughout the prophets, they were substituting external religious activity, worshiping in the temple, paying tithes, feast days, new moons, Sabbath days, all these religious things, sacrifices, all these things had substituted those for a true knowledge of God, a true love of God, a true following of God. And the prophets are always calling them to repent. Stop trusting in your outward religion and get true religion. And Micah, just one of those passages where he says, "How with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before God on high? And he, in the next few verses, talks about all the religious activity that people could and would and were engaging in. And then he corrects it all and says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. A compass passage. Hey, this is what you're supposed to be doing. You don't know whether you're supposed to you know, do a sacrifice this way or that way. I read Leviticus and I don't know whether I'm supposed to offer a free will sacrifice or something else on this occasion. So I may not be clear about that. But I am clear about this. What does God want me to do but to do justice in all of my dealings, to love kindness and mercy and friendship and, and above all things, the beginning point is to walk humbly with God. 
That's true religion. Matthew, the Pharisees were confused fellows, and they were culpable in their confusion, hence Jesus calls them hypocrites. They weren't just misguided because of misinformation. They were misguided because of their bad hearts and their bad choices. And Jesus calls them hypocrites. And he says, you guys tithe all of your seeds that you collect for your various spices and things. And you're tedious about it, and you make sure you count all the dill seeds out. Sit there with your little looking glass and one for the Lord, nine for me, one for the Lord, nine for me. That 10%. But he said, you've neglected the weightier provisions of law, justice, mercy, faith, or faithfulness. The word could be translated either. These are the core things they should have been doing. Again, a compass passage. James, pure religion, undefiled in the sight of our God and Father is this, visit the orphans, the widows, and their distress and keep oneself unstained from the world. This is an altar religion, is, and, and we, we see here that a compass passage doesn't necessarily give you the whole of Christianity or the whole of the biblical message, but it gives you an aspect, and in the Bible, these compass passages are usually presented where people need to hear it. So I wonder what God would say to me. I wonder what God would say to you. And God would have to come down and correct us and say, Steve, this thing you're doing here, you're a little misguided. You need to get your compass straight. Here's where true religion impacts you at this point in these aspects of your life. Tailored to our needs. We're looking at Matthew 22 where Jesus probably gives the ultimate statement, the ultimate compass that we can follow. It will not be give us all the details we need for sure, but it'll give us the big, broad, basic outline in which all the details of our life will fit under. And if we will hold to this outline, hold on to it with all our might, then we will be well-pleasing to God. Matthew twenty two thirty four. But when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the foremost commandment. The second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Let's pray and ask God to be with us. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne. Lord, we think here, here is a statement taken out of the Old Testament but given by your Son, the very Word of God articulated and presented to us by the eternal Son of God. Lord, if we can't trust this, we can't trust anything. But we do trust. Lord, you made the universe and you uphold it. You did it with your word and then you gave us words to live by. Lord, here you've given us a compass to always orient in our lives on these two things. Whatever we do, whatever we think, whatever we pursue, it should be out of love for you. It should always be in that pathway. And it should always express where it impinges upon others. It should always express love, kindness, goodness, all those things that you are made of and we are to exhibit. Lord, what a privilege to be in your image. What a privilege 
to be like you. What a privilege to uh, know that love is the fulfillment of the law and that the Holy Spirit shoves abroad that love in our hearts. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that you would speak to us. Your word is powerful. Your word framed the heavens and the earth. Your word spun out billions of galaxies. Lord, your word formed Adam. Lord, your word works in our hearts, has given us new life in Jesus, and it works in our heart every day. It is your living word. So, Lord, we pray this morning as we encounter this word, as it's presented, as uh, we think on it, Lord, you would do what no human being can do, no preacher can do, no matter how big a celebrity they may or may not be. No one can reach into the human heart but you and make your words to penetrate, make your words to give life, make your words to correct. Lord, you are good and gracious and you do these things because you love us. And Lord, we want to respond with a love in like kind. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 22, just a sort of a brief, uh, I don't know, survey summary again. But when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together. The picture, they're in this marketplace or marketplace-like thing. Maybe they were near the temple. Not sure. <clears throat> but the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all the religious guys were in their little groups and their little crowds, their cliques. And, and Jesus was there. And they now said, hey, we're going we're gonna to take an opportunity here to try to trip this man up. True love, I'm assuming. So they were gathered themselves together. And one of them, who was a lawyer, a scribe, a theologian, if you will, asked him a question, testing him. And we're pretty sure that this question had been bandied about in the theological circles of the day. And everybody had an opinion, and everybody was taking a side or an angle. And the question, even though this fellow asked it in order to trip Jesus up, is a great question. It's a phenomenal question. It's a core question. It's a question every one of us should ask for ourselves. Every one of us should be glad and hold on to the answer. All these laws in the Old Testament, all these statements, all these imperatives in the Old Testament, all these imperatives in the New, which is the great commandment? Which of these is above another? Which is the most significant? Which is the most important? Which is the best compass? Jesus said unto him without hesitation, without having to pause and think and sort through anything, on the tip of his tongue, he's probably been wanting to say this for how long? You Pharisees who tithe your mint and cumin, here's the great commandment that you've been debating about for all these centuries. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and the foremost commandment. This is the most important one. This is the one in which all the others are subsumed under. This is at the top of the, of the page, of the chapter. This is the heading. This is the great and foremost commandment. Another one like it is to love your neighbor as yourself, but we're going to be focusing on this commandment. This commandment comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4, and 5. It's really good to read that, the first little section there. There's uh, Deuteronomy 6 through about verse 8 or 9. Hopefully we'll be looking at that section. 
This morning we'll at least be starting it. That section begins with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is where Jesus is quoting from when he says this is the great commandment. So I think it's good for us to consider the basic elements of this commandment because this commandment is absolutely relevant. Did this commandment get rescinded by the new covenant? Or did this commandment get established and reinforced by the new covenant? See, today we're going to look at uh, the, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that have this passage in it. And some might say, well, it's not found in John. And I'm like, I, I beg to disagree. I think Jesus took this great commandment and he spent five chapters expounding it. John chapter 13 through chapter 17. And he was saying, if you want to know what true love is to God, here it is. If you want to know what true love to one another is, here it is. And I come to establish a new covenant in which this law of love, or as James puts it, the royal law, This law of love will be fulfilled in a way it could never be fulfilled under Moses. No human being can fulfill this on their own. It takes a new birth of the Holy Spirit to love God from the heart, truly and genuinely. And it takes a new birth of the Holy Spirit to love one another truly and genuinely. So we're going to see, well, what is this? This is right out of Deuteronomy. Shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Well, the first question we should probably ask is love. Love is bandied about in our day. Hate and love are, gosh, front page news all the time. These people hate. We have love. You all are just haters and this and that and the other. So what is love? People will pull love up and just use it as almost a bludgeon. You don't have love. I do, but you don't. Bam, bam. What is this love? Well, love is, as began to state it last week, love is a commitment of our deepest self. Love has emotional expression. But love, in its essence, is beyond emotion. It is an expression of your deepest, most innermost being. Love includes an enduring commitment to someone else. I mean, you're to love yourself, and so you should get up in the morning with some commitment to yourself, combing your hair, brushing your teeth. All those kind of things. Guys, girls, you don't understand, or maybe you do. You you have to tell guys this. We don't tend to do this by nature. Coming here once a week seems to be good enough. But love, though we have to love ourselves, love your neighbors, yourself, there's this sense love that's talking about here as, as an expression of something to God. So, 
It gets beyond ourself and it terminates on someone other than ourself. It terminates on this great being called God. It comes from the deepest innermost self and it includes an enduring commitment and goodwill. All love is enduring. All love is a commitment. And all love involves goodwill. Love centers on the recognition of another. You recognize another person. Now you can have love for pets. Pets become part of the family. We project our personhood on them. And okay, yeah, we, we regard them. But we're talking about love for God and those in the image of God. And love centers on a recognition of another person. It considers who they are. I think we are sometimes so quick to dismiss who someone is when we start to talk about them or evaluate them, criticize them. James has a lot to say on that topic. Remember who you are not. You are not God and you are not a judge. And remember who other people are. They are in the image of God. And if you say you, were, you have true religion, the wisdom that's from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Love has definition. Love recognizes other people. Love respects other people. Love regards other people. But in this case, love recognizes God. If you love God, then you recognize who he is. You acknowledge who he is. You regard him for who he is. And your heart, your innermost being, centers on God and the reality of the revelation of himself. Now, we will never experience all there is to experience of God. That's why God created an attorney. It kind of goes on forever. Which in itself indicates you will never actually arrive at a full experience of God. Because forever just goes on forever. So we will be forever as finite creatures. Recognizing the greatness of God and expanding in our knowledge of God. And we're gonna, we need to recognize him. We need to honor him. We need to regard him. We need to view him properly. We need to regard and respect other people if we love them, and we need to regard and respect God. If we love other people, we maintain their honor and their dignity and we cover sin. But when it comes to God, it's a different picture. He has no sin. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There's nothing to have to sort of catch in your throat about God. There's nothing you have to hide. There's nothing to be ashamed of. God is the holy and the righteous God and we need to honor him in all of his greatness and all of his glory and all of his dignity. Love longs for fellowship with another. Love reaches out to communicate with another, to communicate and to interact and to share. 
koinonia, that exchange of fellowship, of life, of purpose, of camaraderie. And if we love God, we will desire that. That's love for God. Do you desire to know the living God? I mean, these are easy questions to ask, but I have to ask them of myself and ask them of us all. How much do you love God? The measure is how much do you want to be with him? Gwen's father passed on to be with the Lord last night and around 2.15, this morning really, so it was this morning. And he has his failings, he has his flaws. Not anymore. But he did. But one thing you could always know about him, whether you were frustrated with him or not, you knew this, that the center of his heart was God. And that in the last 15 years of his life, all he wanted to do was go home and be with the Lord. He died at 93. He just wanted to go and be with the Lord. He wanted to go and be with another. He wanted to go to a place where he could have the deepest fellowship possible with the true and the living God. That was his great purpose, his great joy, his great hope. Love longs for the fellowship of another. How much do you long for fellowship with God? Or have you allowed, are you allowing the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, Jesus said. In a materialistic America, the deceitfulness of riches is just like giant. We have so much stuff, we throw stuff away. and the lust of other things. Has it entered into your life? Have you let it come in and choke out the primary purpose of your existence is to know and to love God? It can happen. It can happen to anybody. Read the life of John Bunyan. I mean, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress and The Holy War and just, just an awesome brother. You read his sermons, they're great. If you can get the works of John Bunyan, you can usually get them out there for 30, 40 bucks. Man, they're, they're just fantastic. You think, man, what a, what a godly brother. And yeah, well, read his, read his autobiography. He had more than one point in his life where he went off and did his own thing. And the Lord spanked his little bottom off and brought him back in the way. It can happen to anybody. If it's happened to you, if you find yourself, you go, man, I'm being honest with God, no one else will know, but I'm really out in the weeds and fellowship with God is just really low on my list. I'm glad it's still there, but it's like way down here. Well, you need to move it back up to the top of the list. Just put it back up there. Let everything else bump down. And have fellowship with the living God. Love establishes an unbreakable alliance to Another. It's not just fellowship, it's not just recognition, it's an allegiance, an alliance. The very nature of sin was to shift in the Garden of Eden 
Adam and Eve shifted their allegiance from God to Satan. Now, many of us growing up had boyfriends and girlfriends. If you didn't, don't count yourself having lost out, but I had a few girlfriends. And I can say that the greatest pain of my adolescent life was, well, when I had to move from the beach to inland, I couldn't surf anymore. That had to be the biggest. Poor Mary Lee Hadley, she came in second. But Quinn's not here, so I can bring it up. But Mary Lee Hadley, she was one of my first loves. And when Mary Lee Hadley was found to have been hanging out that summer with someone else, my heart was broken, smitten, angered. All kind of things went on. And you know what happens when that allegiance, you give love and you want love back and when that allegiance is broken. It is heartbreaking. Goes to the bone because love goes to the bone. Love maintains the boundaries of the relationship. God is our Father if we're Christians. He is not. If you are not a Christian, God is not your Father. All the chatter about the fatherhood of God only applies to Christians, to believers, to those who have repented and been born of God. Be clear about that. Christians all too often take the material of the Bible and forget the audience to whom it was written. And they, with big hearts, but with lack of discernment, take promises to the people of God and start throwing them out there to an unbelieving world. And that's just invalid. God's clear about where his promises land and who his promises are given to. And God's clear about the condition of those promises. The Bible does talk about an unconditional election, but promises, not so unconditional. When you're a Christian and you're a child of God, the the reality of that is just a total amazement. And John just captures it in a simple statement in his first letter, chapter 3, Beloved, we're the children of God. You can read it in half a second and probably many times you just pass over and go, yeah, that's true, move on. Now we can imagine that, wouldn't it be interesting to be the child of a rich person? We can name some names. And then when you start naming the names, you go, nah, probably wouldn't want to be their child, but whatever. As Christians, we have a different view of it, but just generally speaking, would you want to be a child of a poor person or a rich person? An important person or a not-so-important person? Who your father is determines some things. And we forget that when we read that statement. Beloved, now we are the children of God. But there are boundaries to that relationship. He is not just our Father, he's the creator of heaven and earth. And Jesus, as the Son of God, showed us how to relate to him. He said, here's how you pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's where you start with God, acknowledging him. That's how you love God, you acknowledge him. 
And from there on, that relationship of father and child is, is real and full. But if we love God, we will commit our deepest self to him in an enduring commitment of goodwill to God, of recognition who he is, recognizing, regarding, respecting, honoring him. We will want fellowship with him that he has said is the the heart and soul of the new covenant. And we will maintain that unbreakable allegiance to him in the face of a godless world that is arrayed against God. And we will always maintain the boundaries of a holy God who is high and lifted up in his train fills the temple. Now when you talk about love, the Song of Solomon should come to mind when I have done weddings in the past. These are always great passages to come. It is a a song about human love, married love, not unmarried love here. Married love, guys? Married? This one passage is a famous passage. I'm sure we've heard it many times, but... Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. Here's this cry of one who loves another. And this cry of this one who loves another says, I love you with everything I am. I just want the same love back. Put me as a seal on your heart. Husbands and wives, no, this is, this is the love that's for you, and particularly your wife wants to know that she is a seal over your heart. Husbands, love your wives. Love grips and engages the heart like no other human sentiment. It emanates from the core of our being. It emerges from the very bones of our soul. Love is the most profound aspect of ourselves that we have to give to someone else. You can give your whole self only through love. 1 Corinthians 3, that great definition of love, it doesn't seek its own. It reaches out to engage another and to share one's deepest self with another. Many of you heard me bring this up before, but I was, when I was studying friendship, the lost art in, in America, but in particular in the Church of Jesus Christ, friendship is a lost art. There's an art to it. <clears throat> and a lot of people just never know they need to develop it. But, so I was reading a number of books on friendship from different angles, from the philosophers to the medieval world to some people in the 19th century who, by the way, were probably the best on the topic. There's been a number of books written in 20th, 21st century, but they didn't hold a candle to the 19th century. Those writers really knew how to grab something and develop it and just bring it home. And one of the things one of those writers observed is what we all know, it's a common phrase that In friendship and in love, we give ourselves to another. And it must be our best 
itself. Is that what you bring to God, your best self? Love reaches out to engage another and to share the deepest self, and it must be our best self. Is that what you bring to God, or does he get the leftovers? Love is a deep commitment. It's a powerful dynamic. It's an unbreakable bond. It's as strong as death. What a phrase. Can we think of anything stronger than death? Once you die, there's no getting out of it except for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Death just comes with its death grip and does not let go. Love is as strong as death. And when love is operative, all else fades into the background. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, then the riches of his house, I think is what's being referred to, would utterly be despised. It's kind of a cryptic statement. The translators try to grapple with it. This is one of these places where I wish they had gone to interpreting. They do it in places they shouldn't, but I wish that they had done this in this one. Basically, the message is this. Love is worth everything. There is nothing to compare When you're a young man and you've got, oh, you know, you've got all your cool stuff, you've got your cool car. I'm trying to remember the name of the, the movie. It's a really great movie. Ah, the stinks. Had it in my mind. But a fellow loves his car, hangs out with his buddies and everything, then he falls in love. And guess where that car goes in his, his list of importance? Goes way down. Love just, when you have it, when it's real, tops everything. Having a problem with the world, just say, Lord, give me love for you more. More love to you, O Christ. More love to you. The world will fade. It will. Threats and breaches and disappointments of love are met with an unrivaled response and determination. Jealousy is as severe as Sheol. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. There's a proverb that talks about, hey, if a man steals, everybody gets it, but he still has to give the stuff back, to pay back threefold or fourfold or sevenfold. There's different places for how, how many folds you're supposed to pay back. But at least everybody understands it. But when someone commits adultery, there's, there's no explaining that. And it goes on to say that the jealousy of the man who has been victimized, as it were, there's no amount of money you can give him to assuage that. You can pay back three and four fold. Hey, you know, I, I took 50 bucks from you. Here's 200 back. Okay, Steve, I get it. But you start dabbling in an area where someone has set their love on another person and you interfere with that. There's no paying back fourfold, 20-fold, 50-fold, 100-fold. You, you cannot assuage that. That's why jealousy. Jealousy is a reflection of love. 
You set your love on someone, and that can be threatened. It can be breached. It can be disappointed. And the response of one's heart is just this unrivaled response. There's, there's nothing. You can stand up against a lot of things, but who can stand against jealousy? Because the experience of love provides the deepest joy and satisfaction, the violation of love incurs the deepest anguish and sorrow. And perhaps this is an element of the wrath of God. God has given himself to his creation. He has offered himself to a human race. And humans, one after another after another, mock him and reject him and dismiss him and try to reinvent him into their own image. It's not just a matter of justice when God responds in wrath. It's here. Flashes of fire. And there is no assuaging God at that point. Only one place it can be assuaged at the cross, and that is where God assuaged all of the rejection of his love to human beings for those who believe on Jesus. God continually represents himself in the scripture as jealous of his relationship to his people. Terminology is used in the Old Testament that you all are adulterers and adulteresses. I have a relationship with you and you have gone whoring after other gods. That's the terminology of the Old Testament. It's in many places, actually. God has a love, a love that he has offered, and that love is spurned. And it goes to the bone. Love goes to the bone, and so does the spurning of it. Are you spurning God's love? Scientists will enumerate the fundamental forces holding the universe together. If my grandson was here, I'd have him enumerate them for us. But gravity, nuclear forces, those kind of things. And the, the, the greater, the worst uh, discovery of the scientists is those nuclear forces have so much power that if you split one of those atomic particles apart that's being held by these forces, you will release an amount of energy that's just immense. Nuclear energy. But the scientists have left out of the dynamics of the universe the most powerful force there is. And that is love. Scientists don't like it, but they are very limited in the scope of their perspective, apprehension, and discoveries, and whatever. They're very limited. The problem with science is not that, 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 you know, science is denying God. The problem with science is scientists take science way too far. And they start thinking, oh, well, with my science, I can determine what is consciousness. I'm like, no, you can't. All the little theories out there are so silly. We can determine how life begins. No, you can't. Science cannot demonstrate what love is that's so powerful when one is brokenhearted of love. You cannot 
You cannot even hardly talk with them. They are so consumed. And when one is fulfilled in love, they are enraptured with joy. And there's nothing that can touch it. Many waters cannot quench love. Nor will rivers overflow it. That great definition in 1 Corinthians 13, love, what? Bears all things. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And the cross is the greatest expression of it to us. But if we love God, many waters cannot quench our love to God, not persecution or anguish or peril or sword or difficulty or challenge or trials. They really don't touch the love of God. They just touch our daily life and some of the more material or emotional aspects, but our love for God, unmoved. See, the thing about Job is even though he complained about God and started misrepresenting God because he was in such agony, he never lost his love for God. Or his commitment to God. God was always the center, even when he says, as he says, he was being rolled in the dust by God. So love is this powerful entity, and we should have it toward God. It's not just something between people, it's something toward God. We're really glad that God loves us, and when God loves us, that initiates our ability to love him back. We're loving with our heart and with our soul and with our might, all these aspects, every part of our being. Deuteronomy 6.5. We're to be God-centered with every aspect of our humanity. We are to be God-centered from the inside out, from the heart and the soul and the might. And while these terms are really designed to define the comprehensiveness of the unity of our humanity, they're not designed to divide us up psychologically. There are whole, I don't know, quote, doctrines or theologies of sanctification that say, well, you're a body, a soul, and a spirit. And they'll go to a couple passages in the Bible and see it says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless. There you are, First Thessalonians 5. You know, we have a heart, and we have a soul, and we have a spirit. And uh, it, was, it was mostly in the Pentecostal world where deeper life abounds. And this deeper life theology, I, I was in it for years, that's why I know about it, and was burned by it. Uh, that's why I... Uh, don't have any kind words to say about it. It's destructive. But it basically says that you can be a soulish Christian or you can be a spiritual Christian. So you've got to get out of living out of the soul, living out of the spirit. Now try doing that in your daily life and see how, see how confused things get. And you'll start going, yeah, this is probably not what God intended. When the Bible talks about heart and soul and might, it's just talking about our unified humanity from whatever aspect we're regarded. We have an inward man. We have an outward man. If you want to understand the psychology of humanity that God establishes, then you go to Genesis chapter 2 where God creates man. Dust of the earth, breathe into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living what? Soul. See, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. 
in the terminology of Genesis chapter 2. In the terminology of Genesis chapter 2, you have an inward man and you have an outward man. And your inward man has a lot of layers to it. And you want to start dividing those up? Let me know how that works out for you five years from now. It just doesn't. It's not, a lot, it's not helpful a lot. But if we were to look at this term, your heart and your soul and your might, these are general perspectives, perhaps, of some of the layers that make us, make us up, if you will. And the heart can designate our innermost self and the core of our being. It's our personhood, what we are, what we truly, genuinely are to the bone is the heart. And we express what's in our heart. We express our humanity through reason, through emotion, through elation, through all these plethora of experiences and personality. But it's our character, our heart, that's foundational. And we express them through a real humanity, a varied humanity. That's our soul. And with all your might, well, that sort of denotes the external capacities. The word in the Hebrew means force or strength or power or might or even resources. And so what God is saying, here's what I want from you. Here is true religion. You're to love your God with all your heart with the innermost part of your being, with that which makes you, you, with that which defines you in your ultimate essence, you are to love me. And all that you are in your human expression of life, all that you are when you engage in the world and people around you, all your soul, you're to love me. And with all your might. All your possessions, all of your physicalness, all of your dynamic. Now, someone could say, well, God is selfish. Well, wait a minute. God says we're to love him and to give him our everything because why? Because he has loved us. And he has given us his everything. He gave us his own eternal son. God's just saying, I'm just wanting something back in like kind. I've given you everything I am as the eternal and infinite God. I have committed myself to your well-being for eternity. And what I want back is just good common sense that any man or woman wants in a human relationship. God just says, I've set you as a seal on my arm. Now you set me as a seal on yours. And in that deep relationship... It starts in the depths and goes to the heights. We can love the true and living God. What an awesome privilege. We can love the true and living God. And it's to be with everything. It's to be with all. All, all, all. It's kind of like you get up in the morning, you make some coffee, and you, you put some sugar in it, and you start to drink it, and well, half the cup tastes black, and the other half cups taste sweet. Is that what happens? Or does the sugar permeate everything? That's the all here. The love of God is to permeate every aspect of your life. All. And I had a slide that said, you are, you are, you are, but that's enough for this morning. Loving God. The great compass for your life. Do you love him? If you don't, 
Then acknowledge it. Say, Lord, I, gotta, I just got to acknowledge I'm a dirtball sinner here. I, I, I hear that you're great, and I start, I'm starting to think maybe the scientists just aren't as great as they think they are, and this universe is a little a pretty massive place, and you say you made it in six days, and actually the, the, the part that's massive you made in the first few days. You're pretty big, you're pretty awesome, and I've just been ignoring you. I've been trading you in. Well, here's where you come to God and you, you confess that to him. And you say, I just pray you'd forgive me in Jesus Christ, your son. I hear that you've sent him to save me from my sin and somehow make things right, somehow adjust those balances of justice that you live by and that I must live by and that you can make things right that I can't make right in that cross of Jesus Christ. You come to him in faith and you'll be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne again. We thank you that we can love you. You have given us that capacity. We look at all the animals you made, and they're pretty cool. And they have a, a form of allegiance, a form of love, if you will, a form of attachment, but there is nothing there that goes beyond some, just some created things. Lord, you've given us the ability to love you by your Holy Spirit, to love you with a love incorruptible that will never fade, that will never fail, that will be forever. We can respond to you by the Holy Spirit out of the bottom of our heart. We thank you for that capability, that capacity, and that privilege. And just pray you would bless us every day as we learn more and more and more and more determined to love you in every way. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.